I want to thank you, uh, Steve, for the opportunity to bring God's Word uh, this morning. And uh, I'm going to pray and ask that God's Word, as we, we just had the opportunity to sing, would get planted uh, deep in our hearts this morning. Father, your Word tells us that your word is sharper than any double-edged sword. We desire a word from you today that would not just bounce off us like fluff, but that would pierce our hearts and challenge us, that would renew our faith. And so we pray, God, as we look to you today, your word would do good things in us, that would do good things in the churches that we lead, that would do good things in this region. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before we delve into uh, our text for this morning that Joey has just read for us, I want us to get comfortably situated in this book of the Bible that bears Habakkuk's name and for us to get situated in his world. The book that we have just heard read from today deals with a crucial period of history for both the kingdom of Judah and the entire ancient Near East. It's a time of falling and rising empires. The oppressive Assyrian Empire has both waxed and waned, and now there is a new kid on the block emerging to a position of prominence and dominance in the neighborhood. Babylon is rising and is about to eclipse any nation that has come before it on the world stage. In the land of Israel, the northern kingdom has fallen. God's judgment on their sins through the Assyrian Empire has scattered the inhabitants of that nation across the known world. In the southern kingdom of Judah, the hammer of God's judgment has not yet fallen, but it's not far off. But right now, there is optimism in the land. Their foe and overlord, Assyria, is losing its grip on Judah and many of its other former conquered lands. Under good King Josiah, the covenant with God has recently been renewed by the people of Judah. And foreign rituals and objects of worship have been pitched to the curb. The standing of Judah on the world stage is beginning to look up. Material prosperity has begun to return to the kingdom as God blesses Josiah's faithfulness to him. But the people's seriousness about God is short-lived. As generally happens, renewed wealth and a growing sense of security and peace cause the people of Judah to become focused on God's blessings and not on God himself. Quickly they forget the God from whom all blessings flow. And soon the land is plunged back into deep sinfulness and rebellion against God. Wickedness and injustice spring up across the land. And it isn't very long before the people of Judah find themselves once more under the rule of a foreign nation and paying tribute. This time it's Egypt to whom Judah must answer. But Egypt is not Assyria. 
Far from it. And this minor setback does nothing to curb Judah's thirst for wickedness and injustice and sin. It is here at this point when Judah is just getting the furnaces of iniquity stoked up again into a raging inferno that Habakkuk steps onto the stage. Now the book of Habakkuk is unique in that it doesn't record a message from God through his chosen prophet to the people indicting them for their sin and failure to live according to their covenantal obligations as we find in many of the books of the latter prophets in the Old Testament. In fact, Habakkuk contains the exact opposite. This book contains Habakkuk's indictment of God as the prophet takes on the role of an inquisitor and brazenly questions God's fairness and seemingly lack of interest in the affairs of the world and especially the affairs of his own people in Judah. How can God sit idly by while wickedness and injustice reign among God's own people? How can God turn a blind eye when the righteous are trampled upon and those who pursue evil prosper on the backs of the weak? Why doesn't God listen when I cry out to him in the midst of this evil and uncertain time? Habakkuk wants to know. And we read in chapter 1, verse 2, of the prophet's complaint that is directed at God. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry to you violence, but you do not save? Now we don't know much about Habakkuk the person, but maybe he lived through the years of King Josiah. Maybe he was in the crowd that day after the law was rediscovered and read before the people, and as the people renewed their covenant commitments to God. Maybe he was part of the Passover celebration that is recorded to have taken place under Josiah's reign. The greatest Passover feast to ever be celebrated in the land of Israel, it said. And yet now, as he looks around at the nation of Judah, he's left wondering, how could things have fallen so far and so fast? He's left longing for the good old days when the nation was ablaze with the fires of renewal. Distressed, angry, and heartbroken, he demands to know from God, how could you let this happen? Things were going so well, and you dropped the ball. Wake up, God, and get with the program. But we discover, as we read on in Habakkuk, that God has not been asleep. That God has not been disinterested in the affairs of his people, and he has an answer for Habakkuk. Contrary to Habakkuk's perceptions, Judah is on a very short leash. In fact, Judah is about to be reined in severely in short order and punished for its centuries of rebellion against God and injustice against one another. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told, God tells Habakkuk. He then continues, I am raising up the Babylonians, 
that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. This is the moment when Habakkuk spits the camel's mouth out that he's just taken a sip of. Your what, God? The Babylonians, you say? Have you actually met the Babylonians, God? I've heard about them. If they come rolling into here, they aren't going to care who they slaughter or who they lug off into captivity. The righteous and the unrighteous are all the same to those beasts. How is that any solution? If the righteous are forced to suffer along with the unrighteous. Habakkuk argues with God. I was thinking, God, maybe something along the lines of a plague of leprosy, maybe, being inflicted upon the evildoers. But the Babylonians, those godless, vicious heathens, you've got to be kidding, God. How is that any sort of solution? Your cure, God, is worse than the disease. But God has an answer to Habakkuk's distress. The, the crux of God's answer is summarized in seven words. Tucked at the end of verse 4 in Habakkuk chapter 2. God says to Habakkuk, The righteous will live by his faith. And God then goes on to flesh out what it is that the righteous are to have faith that God will do. And there's two promises that God makes to Habakkuk. First, that while Babylon is God's chosen instrument of judgment, that Babylon itself will not get off scot-free. It too will fall under the judgment of God for its great wickedness. And secondly, God promises that hope sits just over the horizon. A day is coming, God says, in chapter 2, verse 14, when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In other words, Habakkuk, while it, it looks like this is the end, it's not really the end. New life will spring from the ruins. Just trust me. The dialogue between Habakkuk and God concludes at the end of chapter 2 with these words from God. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk started out trying to set God straight. But in the end, God ends up setting him straight. By correcting his distorted reality from the way that things appear to the way things really are. And the, things, the way things really are is that God is on the throne. And the way things really are is that God is in control. And the way that things really are is that God has had his hand firmly on the course of events that are unfolding and will unfold and that for the person of faith, that knowledge is sufficient, come whatever may. God never promised that it would always be rainbows and roses. And yet the righteous are called to live day in and day out by faith. And as Habakkuk processes, processes these truths, he's confronted by the sovereignty of God. As he is reminded of the true nature of his calling and that of all God's people 
to be people of faith even in uncertain times. And an amazing transformation begins to take place in Habakkuk as we transition into chapter 3, the final chapter of this book. Verse 2 of chapter 3 finds Habakkuk humbled before God. And now at prayer he prays, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Gone now are the interrogations. The questioning God's watch care over his people. Gone are the inquiries into God's motives. Gone are the suggestions of how God might do things better. If only he would listen to Habakkuk's advice. And in his place is a Habakkuk with a renewed perspective on God. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. And with that, Habakkuk begins in chapter 3 to reflect upon and remember times in the past when God has been faithful to his people. Times when things looked dire and yet God was there and he brought about deliverance for them. You see, Habakkuk's vision of God had become skewed and distorted by his distress concerning the circumstances around him. To him, God was missing in action. God was disinterested in the plight of his people. And Habakkuk needed a renewed perspective of God. And I want to suggest this morning that many of our churches are in need of a renewed perspective of God. But I'm afraid, leaders, this morning, and I speak to myself as much as anyone, that many of us are in need of a renewed perspective of God as well. I believe in many cases what ails many of our churches today is that we have lost our perspective of who God is and what God is able to do. Like the Apostle Peter, we have taken our eyes off Jesus and are wide-eyed at the seemingly overwhelming circumstances blowing around us and the monumental waves that threaten to crash over us and wipe us away and we've forgotten that it was Jesus who called us out of the boat and into the wind and the waves in the first place. And as long as our eyes are fixed upon Him, we will not sink. Have we so quickly forgotten this God that we serve. This is a God who spoke the universe into being. This is a God that fashioned man from the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the God who brought his people up out of Egypt and parted the Red Sea so that the people of Israel could walk across on dry ground. This is the God who brought crashing down the walls of Jericho and the God who directed the stone from David's sling so that the giant Goliath came crashing to the ground. This is the God who shuts the mouths of lions and the God who causes one nation to rise and another to fall. This is the God who became incarnate in human flesh, who healed the lame and caused the blind to see. This is the God whose humanity was put to death on the cross and placed in a grave. And this is the God who no grave could contain. And three days later came roaring back to life, victorious over sin and death. And this is the very same God who says to his people, Surely 
I am with you always to the very end of the age. And who also says to us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This is the God that we serve. God is faithful to his people. It isn't a question. It isn't a debate. It isn't a probability. It's an absolute. But sometimes, like Habakkuk, our perspective of God, our vision of him is skewed. And when our perspective of God is skewed, it shows up in our lives and in the lives of our churches. Sometimes a skewed vision of God shows up in grumbling. Remember the people of Israel at the edge of the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's army is closing in on them. And they're fearful for their future. And they say no way out of the situation they're, they're in. So what do they do? They grumble. Or remember those people out, the same people out in the desert. And there's no good water in sight. And they believe God incapable of providing for their needs. And so what do they do? They grumble. And a little further on, they find themselves without food. God has parted a sea. He's turned bitter water into good. But surely God must not be able to provide them with food. So what do they do? They grumble. The people now sit on the border of the promised land. God has been with them through thick and through thin. Spies are sent into the land and they come back with a report. And my goodness, the land is good. It's everything that God said it would be and more. There are giants in the land. Giants. Well, God may be good at parting seas and turning bad water good and feeding an entire nation with meat and potatoes, but, but this God surely is no giant slayer. And so what do they do? They grumble. And they complain and they blame Moses for getting them into this mess. And they're ready to have his head on the platter. Because with each new obstacle they face, they approach it with a skewed perspective of God. Habakkuk turns to grumbling against God. And at the heart of it is a skewed perspective of who God is. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a church of grumblers. <laughs> but if you dig deep enough, you'll discover that in that church, that something is out of sorts with who those people believe God is. A skewed vision of God also shows itself when we cling tightly to the past. And I want to be careful here, because there's a difference for me in appreciating and honoring and enjoying the good parts of the godly heritage that have been passed down to us from the saints in the past. And that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is an unhealthy fixation on the way things were. And a dogmatic insistence that this is the way that things should continue to be. Because that was the last time that we really saw God move in power in this church. And so we want to preserve it. And when we do that, what we're really saying is, we're glad God moved back there. But we don't believe that he can move again in our time, and that he can renew our church in our day. And so we need to preserve a piece of that manna that's fell from heaven. Although it's rotten and stinking and full of maggots by this time, we want to hang on to it. Because we're not sure that God is going to provide new manna for today. And we're certainly unsure that he's going to provide it for tomorrow. But the word of God says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. 
For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. Moses took a little bit of manna and preserved it in a jar. Remind the people of God's faithfulness in the past. The manna in that jar is not what sustained the life of the community day in and day out. Every morning they look to God to provide new manna for the day ahead. And God wants to do a new thing among his people. But first, we need to stop trying to feed off the manna from yesterday, or last year. Or a decade ago, or half a century ago, or a century ago, we need to trust that God will provide new manna for the day ahead. When we have a skewed vision of God, it eventually tends to show up by simply giving up. If we believe that God is powerless to do anything new, or good in our day, if we believe that God is miserly with his blessings and he's being stingy with us, or if we believe that the power of culture is greater than the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or if we believe that the church is so overrun with problems that God himself couldn't possibly fix them, then eventually we simply give up. And it breaks my heart to see churches and Christians who have done exactly that. We'll meet here. Until there's no more money in the bank to pay the oil bill and the pastor. And that's it. We don't really do outreach here. We're too old and we've tried and no one wants to join us anyway. I've seen churches who when they've had to close their building, that's it. A few members trickle off to become part of other churches, but for the majority, that's really it. They're done with church. Their perspective of God was skewed in such a way that they could not reimagine a a new or renewed life for the church and their community apart from their building. That building stood for all that God had done in the past. And when the lights are turned off for the final time and the door is locked, it's over. There are dire circumstances for us as followers of Jesus. As pastors, as leaders in our church, as educators who prepare people for a life of ministry in the church or out in our communities, when we have a skewed perspective of God. And there are dire consequences for our churches when they're allowed to persist, sometimes years and decades, with a skewed perspective of who our great and awesome God is. Our vision of God needs to be corrected. So what is the corrective? What are the glasses that we need to put on so that we're seeing God with 20-20 vision once again or, or maybe even for the first time? God, in one of his speeches correcting Habakkuk's vision of him, says to Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by what? Faith. Habakkuk needed to hear those words. Habakkuk believed that God had taken his foot off the gas and his hand off the wheel and had locked things into cruise control and walked away. But he was not seeing life and the circumstances around him through the eyes of faith. That God is above the circumstances that he faced. And in fact, in control of the circumstances that he faced. 
We sing, this is my Father's world. Verse 3 of that hymn says, this is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and heaven and earth be one. We're walking and living and breathing in God's world. But do we believe it? For Habakkuk putting on the eyeglasses of faith made all the difference in the world. So let's turn to our passage for this morning and see this for ourselves. I bet you thought I'd forgot about that, didn't you? But I have not. In Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 to 15, Habakkuk immerses himself in the deeds of God in the past and is reminded of a God's greatness, his sovereignty, and most of all, his faithfulness. And when we come to verse 16 of chapter 3, where Joey began his scripture reading for us, Habakkuk is jolted back to reality rather abruptly. He's having a wonderful moment of remembrance. God did this, and God did that. And God was so powerful there. God is in control. Even the mountains cower in fear before him. And the sun and the moon stand still before him. And then he remembers. But. 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 The Babylonians are coming. And we read in verse 16. As Habakkuk is faced again with this reality. He writes. I heard. And my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. As Habakkuk wrestles with these emotions that have welled back up inside of him again, he now stands at a crossroads. We know his previous response to God's revelation that he was sending in the Babylonians as his chosen instrument for judgment on Judah's sins. There's panic. A distrust of God's motives. There's a focus on the circumstances and a resignation that all is doom and gloom. But this time, Habakkuk chooses a different path. Yet, he says, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come upon the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pan and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior, the Sovereign Lord. He is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Once Habakkuk's vision of who God is is corrected, It produces faith in him that God is not done with his people. And that he can persevere through the current trouble and the trouble to come because of his confidence in the character of God. He sees his current circumstances. He knows what's coming up ahead. And yet he doubles down and commits himself to a life of faith and worship regardless. Because he's confident in the God that he serves. Folks, I can't promise the season ahead for the church here in Atlantic Canada will always be smooth sailing. In fact, I'm quite sure that it won't be. 
There are significant challenges ahead, but also amazing opportunities. But I do know this, that faith is the fuel of renewal. At the bottom of it all, I think what the book of Habakkuk is trying to say to us is that the people of God have got to be the people of God, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And at the heart of who we are as God's people is that we are a people of faith. We're born into this kingdom, into the kingdom of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But faith is not a one-time event. It's the way that we are intended to live our lives as his followers from that point on. The righteous shall live by faith. The, the crisis that we see in the church today is largely, I believe, a crisis of faith. We proclaim the scriptures, but do we believe the scriptures? We preach the gospel, but do we actually believe the gospel? We confess that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, but do we actually know what it means to live in light of that reality and the hope that that gives to us as the people of God? And so I believe that renewal and health and vitality in the church begins with the people of God being the people of God once again. It begins with the church rediscovering and applying this foundational principle that the righteous shall live by faith. And believing that God is more than able to renew us in our day as we walk by faith. And so can we drive our, our stake in the ground today? And can we say, though the roof is leaking and the oil tank is low, Though the grumblers are grumbling and the manna is well past its best before date. Though we just carried our biggest giver out the door in a big wooden box. And our pastor is only part time. Though our congregation is old and our pews are hard. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful. In God my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Renewal begins here, I believe. With the people of God starting to be the people of God. By us lifting up our heads to look beyond our present circumstances to the God who has said that the righteous shall live by faith. It's our modus operandi. It's the way that this new life that we have in Christ was intended to function. And I think in some cases we walked away from that. And so people of God, I ask you this morning, are you ready to be the people of God today? Oh Lord, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. Amen.